Take your Bible, find Exodus 20. Exodus 20. We're going to read through the Ten Commandments in just a few minutes. When you come to the Seventh Commandment, and you talk about not committing adultery, obviously we're talking about the issue of sex and marriage. And I just thought it would be worth pointing out that when you go back and look through church history and you listen to some of the best and the brightest about the issue of marriage and sex, you find a very interesting set of ideas. And I'm talking if you go all the way back to the earliest church. Uh, You find some people for most of church history, the vast majority of the years the church has been in existence, who had a very negative view of sex, even when it was uh, carried out within marriage. And I'll give you a few examples of that. I'll give you the example of Tertullian. I'll give you the example of Ambrose. And I'll give you the example of Augustine. These guys, early church fathers, expressed the dominant view up until the Reformation, right, from really the the earliest days of church history all the way up to the 1500s. Tertullian, these are not direct quotes, but they're paraphrases. Tertullian had such a negative view of sex, he said, I would prefer the extinction of the human race than married couples have sex and procreate. He thought that would be better morally for God's people. Ambrose said that married couples should be ashamed of their sexuality something they should be embarrassed about. And Augustine said that all sexual desire was always sinful, even within the confines of marriage. These are big names. These are guys who are defending the Trinity. Uh, These are men who are bishops of important cities. Augustine is recognized as the most important church father by Protestants and by Catholics. Both look back to Augustine and say, this is the guy Uh, who was a a stalwart for the faith when so many weren't. And they all, almost to a a man, had negative views of sexuality. It won't surprise you when you hear that those were some of their views, that before too long, it became a requirement if you wanted to be a pastor or priest, pick your title, you had to be celibate. That wasn't something you'll find anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter, but it did become sort of a, a church rule if you wanted to be In the highest levels of ecclesiastical authority, you had to be celibate. And this is interesting to me. This is fascinating. You may or may not know this. It didn't take long for those priests to begin banning certain days, even for married couples to have sex with each other. And they would begin to say, okay, on this day, it's it's Christmas Day. You shouldn't do it on Christmas Day. Or then it's going to be Easter. You shouldn't do it on Easter. And they come up with this list of feasts and saint days and all these different things. By the time Martin Luther, the monk, sparks the Protestant Reformation in 1517, there were 183 days of the year banned for married couples to have sex with each other. That's the view of sex and marriage amongst many of these early church leaders. Half of the year, it was completely off limits. And the other half, you probably should be embarrassed about it. That is just shocking to me. It's hard for us in our hyper-sexualized culture 
to imagine anybody sort of holding those positions and thinking that way. Now, on a lighter note, I want to tell you uh, one of the funnier incidents from church history. Any of you ever heard of the Wicked Bible? Nobody? This is a great story. 1631 in London, there was a man named Robert Maker. And you can't really see it. I I realize that's a little bit small, but that's the, the cover of what historians now call the Wicked Bible. Robert Maker, his name is, is sort of in that bottom paragraph. He was the royal printer in London, and he basically got the contract to do a, a reprinting of the King James Version of the Bible. He got the rights to do it. And so he set out, and uh, he put all these uh, graphics on it and, and designs, and it, by all accounts, was a beautiful edition of the Bible. It was perfect except he forgot to put one word in that should have been in. And the word that he forgot was the word not in Exodus 20, verse 14. And that's straight out of the, of the wicked Bible, Exodus twenty fourteen. Their S's used to look like F's. That's just the way, the way they did it. Thou shalt commit adultery. And he printed these babies, and they distributed them all over London before they caught it. Several months later, they called him to the Star Chamber chamber at the Royal Palace of Westminster. He was fined 300 pounds, which you say, eh, big deal. That was a printer's lifetime wage expectancy. So they fined him what he would expect to make his entire career. They stripped him of his printing license, and just interesting, there are 10 of these still around today. You can buy one if you want to buy one at auction. The last one that went up for sale was in 2008, and it sold for $89,500, copy of the Wicked Bible. So you thought your last purchase at Mardell was expensive. Try buying a Wicked Bible, 90000 bucks. To be clear, the command is, you shall not, not commit adultery. This is what I think is fascinating for us in the year 2018. When you look back pre-Reformation, you see all of these people who had a very, very, very negative view of sexuality. And one of the things that Martin Luther did, we always think Martin Luther is this great reformer and justification by faith and sola scriptura and all the other solas we talked about a few months ago. He also brought back the idea that marriage was a good thing. You didn't have to be embarrassed about it. You didn't have to apologize for it. You didn't have to feel guilty about it. And he celebrated that. Today, we need to sort of hear the opposite message from Scripture. Those guys back in church history, they needed to hear the idea that marriage was good and sexuality was created by God and it wasn't something that should be banned 183 days of the year between married couples We, in 2018, need to look to the Scriptures and realize sexuality is not a free-for-all. God doesn't just say, figure it out on your own. God doesn't just say, make up your own rules. God doesn't say, just do whatever you want to do. God gives His people very specific instructions about what our sexual lives are supposed to look like. This is difficult for us. Um, Corey mentioned a stat last week about how many violent acts people see, children see on television and cartoons and on the internet. I'm sure you could find a hundred different numbers and a hundred different studies, but here's one that I came across. The average American, 
through TV, internet, and movies, the average American views 10,000 sexual acts over the course of a year. When you think about that number, that's really a creepy number. That's really just should give you the creeps. 10,000 times a year, the average American watches some sort of sexual act being played out on television. We are completely over-sexualized. We're just inundated with it. You can't get away from it. Even in commercials, right? You think you're just watching the news and you don't have to worry about it. And here comes a commercial for selling this drug or that drug or this product or that product. And you say, I can't even, we can't even watch this with young kids in the room. It's just a, a constant bombardment. And the result is we get desensitized to it. I mean, can you imagine... If you could go back in history and lift up somebody like Tertullian or Ambrose or Augustine and just drop them down in the typical Christian's home in 2018 and let them watch an hour of television, just their head would explode. And that doesn't mean they had it all figured out when it comes to sexuality and marriage. That just means we've kind of gone from one extreme to the other. We've gone from one extreme that says it's terrible, it's bad, stay away from it, be embarrassed, be ashamed, hide it, cover it up, to the other side that just says, hey, whatever you think, go with it. And there's no limits or no restraints. So we come to God's Word, and we always want to submit our thoughts and our lives and our worldviews to the Scripture. So let's read the Ten Commandments up through number seven, and then we'll talk about what this one means and what it includes. This is Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and here it is, Exodus twenty fourteen. you shall not commit adultery. I'm going to start with a quote from Mark Rooker. I just want you to understand that the Hebrews were not the only ones in the ancient world who thought that adultery was a problem. Mark Rooker is a professor at Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina. He says, adultery was considered the great sin in a number of civilizations, including Egyptian and Syrian cultures. Why would I share that quote with you? I want you to understand it wasn't just the Hebrews who understood that this was an issue in society. Even pagan, godless, idol-worshipping, know-nothing, just out there in left field lost people had enough common sense to look at society and to say, look, 
the way that this works best is if we don't commit adultery. We need laws to restrict this and to guide us in this issue. And they realized if we don't have any guidance on this, the whole fabric of society begins to unravel. And so many of these societies called it the great sin. What is it what, is it, uh, what does it mean in Exodus 20? The seventh commandment forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage. That's the heart of what we're getting at when we read these words, you shall not commit adultery. It's forbidding all sexual activity outside of marriage. And I want to be clear about what would be included in that statement. Okay, Under that umbrella, that would include... Married people having sexual relations with other married people that are not married to each other, right? You tracking with me? Those people should not have sex with each other. That would fall under adultery. That also includes unmarried people having sexual relationships with married people that they're not married to. They're unmarried and these people are married. That would be a violation, okay? And it would include unmarried people having a sexual relationship with other unmarried people. That would fall under this idea of do not commit adultery. And some people in our society would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't like that last one. Okay, once you get married, yes. Then we draw a line. I just think it's a a little bit artificial to say that the timing of an act makes it more or less sinful. That before the God who exists outside of time, the God who created time, that we would think that somehow we get a pass with him on this issue because we say, well, that didn't happen after he or she or I or they were married. It happened before we were both married, and so that's, you know, that's not as bad. And I'm going to tell you, there are millions of young people, Christian young people, church-attending young people who would have that very thought in their mind. It's not as bad if we're not married yet. Premarital sex. We're going to be okay with that because we're not married yet. And one of the things Hunter and I kicked around this week, and he's going to share with the young people, and I will share with you, and you can share with your kids or your grandkids or anybody that will listen, is the idea that if you wouldn't have sex with another person married to another person after they were married, why in the world would you do it before they got married if you're not going to end up married to them in the end? The timing of it is irrelevant. It's still a violation of the heart of this command. The timing doesn't make it less sinful. Now, some people look at this command. I thought this was fascinating when I started reading and researching and looking at scholars. Some people really try to pick this apart and find loopholes, sort of exceptions, things that maybe we can get by with keeping the letter of the law and not actually breaking the specific commandment here. And so some people would say as long as a marriage takes place, a man is free to have sex with as many women as he wants to as long as he's married to all of them. That was the logic of Joseph Smith and the first Mormons. You understand, the first Mormons, they read the Old Testament. They knew this commandment was in here. And they looked at the rest of the scriptures and they said, you know, I, I think as long as we're married to all of these women, then it's okay. 
I read a whole bunch of other scholars this week that talked about the, the issue of prostitution and said, this command really doesn't address the issue of prostitution. And you won't find a really clear command anywhere else in the Old Testament about the issue of prostitution. Uh, in Muslim countries, Muslims have this, this idea, you shouldn't commit adultery. But they fall back on this idea of marriage. And in many Muslim countries, there's an idea that you can go into a marriage for a set amount of time. You and I are going to be married for the next hour. You can get a legal piece of paper, you can have a little ceremony, then you can go do your thing, and then the marriage is over and everyone feels good about it. We haven't broken the command. That happens all over the world. People saying, yeah, you shouldn't commit adultery, but trying to find some sort of way around it. So we're saying the seventh commandment forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage. Let me give you some qualifiers to that. You ready? The seventh commandment assumes the definition of marriage found in Genesis 2. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. So we'll come back to Genesis 2. But when it says, do not commit adultery, just the assumption, unwritten, that you can't get away from, is that God has already defined what marriage is in the Scriptures. Secondly, the seventh commandment is not the only thing the Old Testament says about sex. We're going to come back to this idea in a few minutes. There are other things in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Bible has to say about sex. This isn't the only one. Last, the Old Testament never paints polygamy or prostitution in a positive light. And some of our early Mormon friends and some of our Muslim friends and other folks around the world would say, you know, your own scriptures, there's examples of men marrying multiple women and having multiple wives. Where do you get off limiting it and saying that you shouldn't do that? And we would go back to those stories, and you read them, and you're, you're right. It never says, just in parentheses, by the way, Abraham should not have done this, or Jacob should not have done this. But read the story and look how it played out. Did it ever work? Did it ever play out well? Did anyone ever come to the end of it and say, you know, this, this was good? This, is, this worked out well. We would encourage other people to do this. Every time you read about it, it's a complete train wreck. And the author, if you have eyes to see it, is telling you, this isn't how it works. God gave you the definition for marriage way back in the beginning, and all these aberrations are just not going to work. What does this commandment include? Let me give you a, a, a few thoughts here. The inside-out rule reminds us that adultery is ultimately an issue of the heart. Adultery is an issue of the heart. Let's look at Matthew 5. I know that you know the gist of what Matthew 5 says, but let's look at it and think about it carefully. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We just heard that. Exodus 20, 14. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. I appreciate how Corey talked about 
commandment six last week when he brought this issue up because he did not say to us, being angry with your brother is the same as murdering your brother. It's not the same. Jesus doesn't say it's the same. What Jesus says is, you can be guilty of breaking the commandment without actually plunging the knife into your brother's heart. You can break the heart of the commandment internally. Is it the same sin? No, it's not the same sin. Jesus himself talks about some sins are worse than others, and this person will be held responsible for a greater sin, and he understands that. So he doesn't say these two things are morally equivalent, and he doesn't say here that, well, you know, if you're going to lust, you might as well just go all the way and do it because you've already broken the command. That's not the point. Only a fool would think that that's what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, don't pat yourself on the back as if you've not broken this commandment just because you haven't actually acted on it. Ultimately, this is a matter of the heart. It's not just an external thing, but it's also a heart issue. You realize that when Jesus says that, that's just a bomb in the middle of our culture. It just explodes so much of what we experience and see and take in on a daily basis. Jesus is saying, if you have done this in your heart and in your mind, you're guilty of violating the heart of this commandment. Here's a quote from A.W. Pink on this issue. Pink's always quotable. Let no man flatter himself with the idea that he cannot be charged with unchastity because he has abstained from the actual deed while his heart is a cesspool of defiling imaginations and desires. Don't pat yourself on the back and check this one off the list if your heart is like a sewer. You've broken the commandment. And when most of us listen to what Jesus has to say and we listen to to Pink's quote, we think lust, pornography, filth. And most of us think, guys, I hope you're paying attention to that. But the heart of this command would equally apply to women... And it doesn't even necessarily have to apply to the issue of physical lust and pornography. What this boils down to is if you are married to one person, don't spend your life wishing you were married to someone else. Certainly don't spend it acting like you're married to someone else. But in your heart, don't spend your life wishing that you were married to somebody else. You're guilty of violating this command. It's an issue of the heart. What does this command include? Let's talk about the category rule. That reminds us that the seventh command represents all sexual sin. It sort of stands for an entire category of things that God addresses elsewhere in the Bible. And if you stop and think about it, if God was going to put one command, which he did, he only put one command in the ten, in the top ten, only one command that deals with sexuality, it makes a lot of sense that he would do this one. He would use this one, do not commit adultery, that he would try to protect marriage. Because the way God set the whole thing up to work in the beginning is that marriage is a foundational building block to human culture and human society. And so when he puts this one sort of representative umbrella command, what he's saying is, you've got to protect that. Do not commit adultery. This is important. This is foundational to who I made you to be. But it's a category issue. For example, the Holiness Code of Leviticus 18 expands on the seventh, uh, the seventh commandment. You can turn to, to Leviticus 18 and read that a little bit later. 
But there's all sorts of things that are restricted. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stay away from this. You're not supposed to do this. All relating to sexuality. And my point is that Exodus 20.14 is not the only thing God said to his people about sex. He said a whole lot of other stuff. Now, I just want you to think for a minute. As a parent or a grandparent or a teacher, when do you typically make rules? Most of the time you make a rule after somebody has done something you don't want them to do, correct? You say, oh, that's not good. We need a rule about that. And I'll give you an example. My kids go to school at STEM. And STEM is over on the campus of UTPB. We like STEM. It's good. The facilities are not ideal. There's one way in and one way out. In the morning, you got all these kids coming in the little tiny drop-off line. And if you time it wrong, you're there forever. And it's a disaster. And kids are taking 15, 20 minutes to get out of the car. And so every now and then, they send an email out to the parents. And the email says, Dear Parents, We love your kids so much. When you bring them to school in the morning, please make sure that they're awake in the car when you pull up. Why did they put that in there? It's because mama pulled up and little Johnny was sleeping in the back seat. And they say things like, please make sure your kids are fully dressed when you pull up in the drop-off line. Please make sure that your kids aren't eating breakfast when you pull up in the drop-off line. Please make sure your kids aren't playing video games when you pull up in the drop-off line. And they list all these things, and you read it, and you say, somebody did that. That's why they're sending the email out. Some goober did that. In fact, this morning, we pulled up in the line, and here was a kid, and they pulled up, and nobody got out. Nobody got out. Nobody got out. And finally, the door kind of pulled open. Here comes this kid falling out. And he kind of stands there and he kind of looks around and he looks down and his sweatpants are messed up. So he takes about two minutes to fix his sweatpants down here like this. And he's doing that. And then he kind of stands up and he looks around and he realizes, I don't have my coat. So he starts digging in the car for his coat and he gets a coat out and he's putting the coat on and it's raining. Kids are running everywhere. He's got his coat. And then he looks around and he's looking for his backpack. And you get the idea. When some goober does that, I'm going to get an email tomorrow that says, Dear parent, when you pull up in the line, please do this. You realize when you read a passage like Leviticus 18, God's not just pulling that stuff out of thin air. He's not saying, well, this may be an issue down the road, so I'll go ahead and throw this in. He's looking at people, human beings, who have lived on the earth in rebellion against him and defiance to what common sense and and general revelation tells us to be true. And he's saying, you need to stop this, and you need to stop this, and you need to stop this. And the Bible has a whole lot more to say about sexuality than just the seventh commandment. So we think about this, this category. The Bible speaks against a number of sexual sins, including fornication, polygamy, homosexuality, bestiality, Sexual abuse, pedophilia, incest, prostitution, pornography. We could just keep going on and on and on and on. Sometimes the Bible is very clear and direct and specific in saying, do not do this. And sometimes the Bible is a little bit more, you could say, sophisticated 
on a literary level, and it describes somebody doing those things, and in describing it, the story is clearly telling you this was a bad, bad deal. This was a shameful thing, and it shouldn't have been done. But the Bible addresses a lot of these issues, many, many, many of these issues. One more rule, thinking about what is included here, the positive-negative rule. This is important. Positive-negative rule reminds us that the seventh command requires us to hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. What I mean is, it's not enough to stake out our position by saying, we're against this, 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 this. All those are bad things. We don't want to do any of those things. Okay? That's essentially the position of the early church fathers who said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the list just got longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. And no one ever stood up until the Protestant Reformation and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we for here? We're against these things, but what are we actually advocating for? What are we suggesting is the goal that we should chase after? And when you look at the Ten Commandments, many of them are worded negatively. Don't do this. And every time one of those commands says, don't do this, you and I as the reader are to understand, if I'm not supposed to do that, I'm supposed to do something else. If I'm not supposed to use God's name in vain. I'm not supposed to take his name in vain. I am always to use it reverently with respect and in worship. That's the positive. And the same thing is true here. We've got to hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And I've given you several verses there that talk about that. Let's look at a few biblical examples of this. Turn all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. If you want to make sense of... Anything the Bible has to say about adultery or marriage or sexuality, this is the passage you have to begin at. And I'm not just saying that. I'm basing that off Jesus himself. When people came and challenged him and and tried to trap him and tried to trick him about marriage and all of these different questions, Jesus went back to the beginning and he said, You are wrong in your thinking because you don't understand how God set it up to work in the beginning. So he said, you got to go back to Genesis 2. Look at Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The first thing, not good. No sin has entered the cosmos at this point. And everything we've heard is it's good, it's good, it's good. And the summary is it's very good. It's just how God wanted it to be. But then the, the author tells us this one thing was not good. God said it was not good, that the man would be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. We could have 
a month-long Bible study on what that one passage talks about marriage. We're reading it just to say, this is the foundational piece that you've got to put in place. God said, it's not good that you would be alone. I'm going to make someone for you, and that is going to make this not good situation good. And you're going to be together, and you're going to complement each other, and you're going to be different, but the same. Both going to be created in my image, but, but not exactly the same. And you're going to have specific roles to play in this relationship. You're going to be united together as one. And you're going to be naked. And you're not going to be ashamed. And this thing that God made is very, very good. Then you flip over to Genesis 4. The passage that Corey referenced last week when we talked about murder. Also applies to this issue of adultery. And in Genesis 4, we're reading about all the fallout of Adam and Eve's sin. All the other things that have gone wrong. All the unintended consequences. If they had known these things would happen, they never would have done it in the first place. Genesis 4.19, Lamech took two wives. And you read that and you should say, like alarm bells going off. That's not how God set it up to work. He set it up for one man to be united to one woman and for the two, the two, not the three, the two to become one. That's the math that God set up in the beginning. Here's Lamech, and as Corey pointed out, he's boasting about how he's going to murder these guys, and he's going to kill all these dozens of men, and he's, he's going to get revenge on them. But he's also boasting about these women that he's taken, and he's violating God's, God's pattern in taking more than one wife. Jump to the New Testament. I'll let you read the rest of these Old Testament verses. They're really good. I gave you Genesis 39 and 2 Samuel 11. You can read those two and you can compare Joseph, who literally runs away from adultery, to David, who literally invites it into his own house. And you can look at two different ways to approach it. One, you can hightail it, turn and run away as fast as you can. Two, you can think about it, you can imagine it, you can bring it close, and you can read the results. Uh, Leviticus 20 talks about adultery being a capital fence. Proverbs has a lot to say about adultery. Proverbs has some great things to say about adultery. Things like when you, when you chase after another man's wife, it's like you're carrying fire, a torch, right next to your chest, and you think it's not going to set you on fire. This is going to get you. Proverbs says things like the guy that's chasing after another man's wife or the woman that's chasing after another man's, you do whatever. You're chasing after somebody you're not supposed to chase after. You're like an ox being led to the slaughter and you don't even know it. You're walking into your death. It's a disaster. You can look at Proverbs. I want you to look at Matthew 14. This is fascinating. Matthew 14. Start in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. Why would he think that? He thinks that John has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers were at work in him. Why would he think that? Verse 3. Herod, past tense, had seized John and bound him... And put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Who was Herodias? It was his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, 
it is not lawful for you to have her. This is the only reason I want you to see this story. John the Baptist walks around, Herod's on the throne, and he's saying publicly, the most public figure in all of Israel, he's saying, you should not be married to your brother's wife. Your brother is Philip. Philip's married to Herodias. They lived in Rome. You went to vacation in Rome. You brought her back with you. You should not have her. And John the Baptist did not pull punches. And he's publicly saying to everyone who will listen, that's an unbiblical marriage. That's not right. He would say it to Herod. He would say it to anyone who would listen. And Herodias and Herod got so mad and so offended and so put off that first they put him in prison. And then when Herodias had the chance, what did she do? She said, give me his head on a plate. John the Baptist lost his head because he had the guts to speak into his culture and to say, that's not God's plan for marriage. Christians in the United States are going to face a very similar decision at some point. Are you going to keep your mouth shut and just try to fly under the radar and bide your time? Or are we going to have the courage... We don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be hateful about it. We don't have to be, hold signs and call people names and be ugly. But are you going to have the courage to say, this is what God's Word says about marriage. This is what God's Word says about sex. This is okay. This is not. It cost John the Baptist his head. It might cost us one of these days. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And you look at that and you say, well... That might put a lot of us in trouble. Because we've already gone through some of these other commands and we felt conviction about some of the things that God has said not to do or told us to do. And we might fall into that camp. And Paul says, none of those people are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he acknowledges that. Verse 11, such were some of you. That used to be some of you guys in Corinth or at Emmanuel. That's what you used to be. But you were washed You are sanctified and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Gives this list of sins. It's not a comprehensive list. It's not these are the only things that keep you out. He just gives a list of things and he says, if you chase these things unrepentantly, with no remorse, intentionally, and that's your goal, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to inherit the kingdom. Don't be deceived. You do these things. You chase these things. That's the pattern of your life. You're not going to inherit the kingdom. And he includes in here sexual immorality and adulterers in the question or the issue of homosexuality. You're not going to inherit the kingdom. You look at that and you say, man, I'm in trouble. But then he gives us hope and he says, that's what some of you used to be. But something happened. You were washed, you were sanctified, 
and you were justified. That leads us to Jesus. We're going to end talking about Jesus' active obedience. I want to start with just one thought that's not on your notes. I started thinking about it this afternoon, and I intentionally left it off, and then I wished I would have put it on, so it's not on there, but let's talk about it for a second. Jesus' active obedience. Jesus kept the law. He obeyed the law. He obeyed the Ten Commandments. He never committed adultery. It means he never acted on it physically. It means in his heart, he never lusted inappropriately. That means in his emotions, he never wanted to do it or wished he could do it. He was righteous. He was celibate. This is something that our culture just has completely forgotten. Even Christians have completely forgotten. The only perfect human who ever walked the earth was never married. If you or anyone else doesn't get married, it doesn't mean you're incomplete. It doesn't mean you're lacking something. It doesn't mean you're missing out on something that would make you a whole person. Jesus never did any of those things. Never married, never walked the aisle, never had sex. He was celibate. And he was perfect. And he was righteous. And our culture has gone to the far other extreme where we think, you hear this thinking every single day. Our culture says, if I can't express these desires that I have or these feelings that I have or these emotions I have, if I can't act on them, then I'm being somehow held back and repressed and I'm not being my, my best me or my true me. I'm not being who God made me to be. And we, we've bought this lie that if you can't just follow any desire that pops up in your heart and act on it, that somehow you're missing out or you're lacking something or you're incomplete. Jesus never acted on any of those things. He wasn't incomplete. He wasn't lacking. He never broke this commandment. He was obedient. Now, that's not on your notes. I'll give you a quote from Edmund Clowney, and we'll talk about something even deeper than that theologically. Here's a quote from Clowney. Thinking about marriage and adultery. God did not fish around for some image to use to show his people what his love is like and then stumble on marriage as the best one to convince them to return to him in covenant devotion. He did not recognize the power of married love and determine to use sexuality as the strongest figure. No, God planned it the other way around. The Lord placed in us at creation deep sexual emotions. Why? So that we would understand something more important, the jealousy of his love for us and the joy of jealousy for him. And so we'll end with these two thoughts, thinking Old Covenant and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, Israel's rebellion and idolatry was repeatedly described as adultery. Over and over and over, God says, you've been unfaithful to me. You're adulterers. And he's not just talking about the issue of husbands and wives and physical sex. He's talking spiritually, you have broken the relationship that I established with you. We're not going to look all of those up because we've been reading them on Sunday mornings. The minor prophets say this over and over and over again. 
right? You're guilty of unfaithfulness. You're guilty of betrayal. You're guilty of adultery. Hosea presents that so clearly. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. The heinousness and the ugliness and the horror of what it looks like to be unfaithful to the Lord. So in the Old Covenant, this, this sin is always described as adultery. In the New Covenant, Jesus is described as a groom, and the church is described as the bride of Christ. And I want you to see the logic of Ephesians 5. So fill those blanks in and then flip over to Ephesians 5. Start in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, his, is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, back to the beginning, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's the kicker. This mystery is profound, and I am telling you, I'm saying that the mystery here refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of two becoming one actually refers to Christ and the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Clowney is talking about in the quote I put on the screen is Ephesians 5.32. And he's saying this, don't think that God set everything up in the beginning and he made marriage and we bopped along in the old covenant and then here comes Jesus in the new covenant and God's inspiring Paul to write this letter and God's trying to, to come up with some sort of illustration or explanation to help them understand what Christ has done and he says, eh, the closest thing I can find is this marriage deal I made. So he talks about marriage and then applies it that way. He's saying it's actually the, the other way, turn it up on its head. What Paul is saying is the mystery of marriage actually points us to Christ in the church. Meaning, in the beginning, God's desire was, i got to help my people understand. This is the beginning. i got to help my people understand what I'm going to do for them through Jesus. Through Christ. And how he, the groom, is going to be united to his bride, the church. I want my people to understand that. That's the end game. And to achieve that end, he says... I'm going to make marriage. Not as an end in and of itself. Not because it's supremely important. Not because it's even key to what it means to be human. Jesus didn't experience that and he was completely perfectly human. But I'm going to make this thing called marriage. I'm going to build these emotions, these feelings into people so that they can understand something much, much more important than even marriage. And throughout this old covenant, when God's people are unfaithful, he tells them over and over and over again, you're whoring after other gods. You're unfaithful to me like an unfaithful spouse. You've committed adultery against me. And all of it is leading us to this groom who dies for his people, who lives a perfect life, 
so that we could be made righteous. Somebody who keeps the seventh commandment for people who have broken the seventh commandment so that we can be united to him and the two can become one. That's the most important thing about the seventh commandment. Not just the surface level about, well, husbands and wives should do this and not do this. What does the seventh commandment, what does marriage, what does sexuality teach us about Jesus in the church? That's the end game. That's the higher purpose. That Jesus was able to purchase an unfaithful people to forgive our betrayal, to cleanse us and to wash us and to clothe us in white garments. And the seventh command, in the end, while it has plenty to say about how society works best, while it has plenty to say about husbands and wives, while it's restricting things that we should not chase after, is ultimately pointing us to something far more important than just marriage on this earth, but is pointing us to the marriage between Jesus and his people. And you can read about the consummation of that marriage in Revelation 19. The Bible ends, begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. And it ends with a marriage, with Jesus coming back and being wedded to his people. It begins and ends that way. And the last one in Revelation is the ultimate one. And the first one in Genesis was created and put in place to help us understand what's going to happen at the end.